This is Unfortunate History. Literally, like your back must be so sore from carrying this podcast because all <laughs> all I do is just listen to you and go, oh, again, mm. again, and a lot of a lot of mm. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. again, mm, mm-hmm. 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 and then ha, 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 ha. <laughs> funny one, and that's my involvement. Whereas all the business side, all the recording side, it's all Cody. I've said it before. Well, if you laugh, then the audience knows when to laugh. <laughs> That's important because maybe my jokes don't land well enough. <laughs> so, Literally, like you, you'll say a bad joke and I'll just be there, straight fast going, <laughs> just so everyone knows to laugh. I'm a living laugh track. That's what I am to this podcast. I haven't seen Greg legitimately laugh in years. He's just been fake laughing to me constantly for the last couple of months. <laughs> you know, to all my British listeners, he's American. You got to humor him, and you know, you just got to let him know that. Yeah, that 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 was funny in its own right, but I'm not going to fully laugh. So you'll get a, <laughs> and that's about that. Good one, sir. <laughs> Jolly good. It's the verbal equivalent of a lol. That's very British of you it, to, to to throw out like a small, ah, yes, yes. <laughs> and I feel like that actually ties us in really well to this ep- today's episode because we're going to be discussing one of the most British men from all of history. And I'm kind of excited about it. I'm pretty excited about it, actually, because he was very impressive uh, as a person. I'm not I'm not going to say I've, I've fallen for him, but if he were around today, I'd probably try to, you know, hit him up. <laughs> He'd write me back, new phone, who this type thing. So, I'm like, <laughs> 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 like, Digby, please respond. <laughs> I'm already doing that thing where um, I'm coming in blind again. And I suppose as a British person, as someone who enjoys history, especially, you know, British history of the war and that I should really know who this is. But um, as the podcast goes and as we've learned so far, um, I'm kind of stupid. So I know fuck all. Dad, I, you can know everything in the world and still be stupid. Trust me. I'm telling you, man. <laughs> Take it from me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you almost made me choke on my drink and I was having a sip of... We're going to have to beep that out. We can't have product placement unless they pay us. <laughs> okay, okay. I was, I was having a sip of fancy Belgium beer. There you if go. If you know what I mean. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, there you go. Well... The last couple of episodes have been pretty noticeable. A lot of people have kind of heard the names and that sort of thing. Um, don't exactly remember what was before Lorena Bobbitt. What was before Lorena Bobbitt? It that was, was um, that was the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. There you go. Yeah. So we talked about the Twilight Zone. I think before that we talked about Emmett Till. We talked about uh, Billy the Kid, and then obviously that led up to Lorena Bobbitt. So we're t- we're discussing more names that people have at least kind of heard at one point in their lives. But mm-hmm. I like and. If you've been listening to the episodes up to this point and all of the episodes, you know that we've just, we've covered some people that aren't very well known. And I really like that about the podcast because mm-hmm. I want to use our podcast to help introduce people to certain characters from history that they may have never heard of or maybe never well will hear about anywhere else. Mm-hmm. That's what we'll be doing today. Today we'll be covering Major Allison Digby Tatham Water. And Major Digby was a true British eccentric known for his charismatic nature indestructible confidence, and his umbrella. Now, he served as a commanding officer under the British Army during World War II and was known to stroll the battlefield, umbrella in hand, seemingly unaware of the constant barrage of bullets. (laughs) And Digby's life was filled completely with moments of heroism, 
absurdity, and we'll be discussing some of the most interesting today. And we'll start with Major Digby's early life like we normally do, and then we'll discuss a few of his incredible military operations. Greg, you probably don't know who this is at all, and neither do most of the listeners. Major Digby, mate, I've known about Major Digby my entire life. He's like an idol of mine. I absolutely know who Major Digby is. I have an umbrella signed by him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you're totally right. I have no clue who Major Digby is. And again, I, I'm um, I'm ashamed of myself for not knowing who that is. He is the quintessential badass British person, but like in a very eloquent sense. Is this if like Stephen Fry? was uh, fighting in a war. If Stephen Fry was fighting in a war and he was like 150 pounds. So if we if we half Stephen Fry and he fought in a war... Well, he's lost quite a bit of weight now, but he still would need to lose a bit more weight to get down to 150. Stephen Fry is a fucking national treasure. Don't you badmouth him that way, Cody. I didn't badmouth him. I've paid money to see him speak. <laughs> have you? I have, yeah. I saw him speak in Birmingham. Birmingham. Really? Yeah, I did, yeah. When was this? Oh my God, I would have come to that. Was this before you knew me? No, no, it was a couple of months. It was like uh, middle of last year or something like that. Yeah, uh, it was really nice. Yeah, it was very good. I would have totally gone. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, listeners. I'm signing off the podcast. Cody's doing this one on his own. <laughs> I'm upset now. Nah, um, yeah, okay. I've, I've, I've kind of got an envision of who this, um, who he was in my head anyway. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll try to paint as much of a picture as I possibly can for you and the listeners. But Major Digby was born in Shropshire, England, during the Great War on the 21st May 1917. He was the son of Henry de Grey Totham Water, who had also served in the British Army, but during World War I. Now, Henry was actually gassed during that war and unfortunately died when Digby was 11 years old. Then, Digby was educated at Wellington College, Berkshire, or Berkshire, and in 1935, he was accepted into the Royal Military College at Sandhurst. All of those places, as an American, I don't know if those are actually famous places to be educated. Like the Royal Military College, I don't know if that's a big thing that people hear about here. Because in America, you hear about like the officer training school and that sort of thing. But I don't know if that's the same here. So have you heard of these places? See, as someone who is also just generally uneducated, um, no. Okay, good. Yeah, cool. Well, we're teaching people things. You're teaching me things, Cody, at the very least. Yeah, exactly. So we don't really have much else on his really early life. It kind of just went from him being born in Shropshire to being trained to be in the military. And that's his biggest thing. If you enjoy history, you'll know that so much of history comes from a war somewhere. Most cool stories or most interesting stories or most absolutely awful stories come from wars. That's just it. That's, that is history. I'm trying to think of like any story through history ever. And there's always been like at least some sort of conflict going on. You know what I mean? Like Now we're going to get into Digby's military career and that's kind of where the bulk of the whole story lies. We're going to go through his military service all the way up into his death basically. But this is kind of where the interesting part of Major Digby's life comes from. So that's kind of where we're at. I know if people don't like learning military history, it's okay. It's not too much military history. It's more about just centered on what Major Big Digby did during World War II that made him so fucking cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Now, Digby graduated from Sam Hurst two years later as an officer at the rank of second lieutenant, which is quite normal. Interestingly enough, he actually had some family connections in India, and he wished to transfer to the Indian Army. 
and he was attached to an Indian Army battalion, although he was never actually transferred to the Indian Army. I think around this time, Great Britain and India were quite close. Is that right? Oh, yeah. We, 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 we were bros around this time. There was a lot of Indian sort of like, you know, like the sort of Hindu soldiers who fought in World War II on behalf of the British. Right. But after two years in India, Digby decided that he actually wanted to see action on the front lines of the war. So he requested to be transferred to the airborne forces fighting in Europe during World War II at the time. This decision soon saw him in command of a company of the 2nd Battalion. So the 2nd uh, Parachute Battalion, I believe it was. Oh, yes, sorry. It's, uh, he was in command of a company of the 2nd Battalion of the newly formed Parachute Regiment. And his timing on this couldn't have been more perfect to see action on the front line because a company was to be an integral part of the biggest airborne operation in history, Operation Market Garden, which sounds not very big. <laughs> I was like, could they have not thought of a better name? Like, you know, like Operation, like fucking Hellfire, Operation... Ask fuck the Germans. Just something a operation, bit better than... <laughs> drop bomb on your ass. Like, <laughs> no, we have another operation coming up that has a cooler name, so just stay tuned. Okay, cool. Now, the point of Operation Market Garden, not that many really care. Like I said, I know you don't want to hear about in-depth historical facts. You might. You may, may. So if you do, the point of the actual operation was to gain control over certain bridges in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. This would give the Allied forces control over a great majority of the River Rhine, which ran through the Netherlands and even through Germany in some parts. This would allow the Allied forces to bypass the Siegfried Line, which was the Germans' defensive line that ran along the western border of the old German Empire. Mm -hmm. In general, this operation would put the Allied forces in a position to really stick it to the Axis forces. I'm trying to think of a put it in a, for like a um for the English football and American soccer fans. It's like playing a long ball to a fast winger. You just need to get it past the defense. Like <laughs> that's very on brand for this particular episode. It's very British. <laughs> Ooh, I, don't, I, I don't know American football. What would that be? Well, basically, the the offensive line is trying to basically just make any sort of yard gain, trying to push the line of scrimmage a couple of yards. They're trying to get to the other side of the line. That's basically it, and they're hoping that they can get a foothold in past the River Rhine, and that would give them control in the area that the Germans were controlling. They're trying to just basically squeeze the Germans, it seems like. Mm -hmm. But as we'll see in a few minutes, this was not a really well-thought-out plan, because this is unfortunate history. So, <laughs> Yeah, obviously. I was waiting for something bad to happen. Honestly, I was. We'll get to that. Now, we'll start with a bit of the training for the operation, because there's some interesting stuff that happened during the training. Now, the training for Operation Market Garden is where Digby truly started to show his impressive commanding abilities along with his dry sense of humor and ingenious inventiveness. At the age of 27, Digby was described as having one of the coolest heads in the war. The way these people talk about him, he was even described by commanders after he had left the military and stuff. Pe commanders said, you need to watch out for Digby. Just look over him, watch out for him, make sure he, <laughs> do, he does all right, because people thought he was just the coolest motherfucker in the world. As, as I say, you say he's 27, but I'm still just picturing Stephen Fry. <laughs> he's not that old. Honestly, he was, he's a very handsome man, actually. He looks like a more handsome version of the guy that played Stephen Hawking in that film. Eddie Redmayne? Eddie Redmayne? Really? Uh, yeah, he looks like a really handsome version of Eddie Redmayne. If you just Google Digby Totham Warder. He, 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 he is quite a striking man. I've got a picture of him with his, with his umbrella as well. Very striking, very slim, slender, but like a strong jaw and very, very, very attractive man. Like he definitely had to have the look about him to be a commander and that sort of thing. So, well, I, I, Okay, I wouldn't say he's Hollywood 
good looking. But no, of course, he for was, the time, but he was definitely a handsome man for, for the time. I, I, I can I can say that. Now, like I said, he was described as having a very cool head in the war, but apparently he also knew how to party. Although it said that when he was drunk, he became belligerently violent. But on one particular occasion during the training, Digby actually managed to procure an American Dakota aircraft. I don't know. I, I don't know how to explain that. It's just a type of plane. He was able to get one of these planes. He then used this aircraft to fly him and all of A Company's officers from the base in Lincolnshire or Lincolnshire, however you want to say it, to a party at the Ritz in London. I found no information on if Digby was punished for this or not, but he continued to command A Company, so I assume he actually wasn't punished for this. So he just flew some of his officer friends in a commandeered plane down to London to the Ritz and had a great party and then just came back. You know, I, I, I like him. I like him. I would have had a good night out with this guy. And, you know, he's, he's one that you, you get those people who make you proud to be British and English. And so far... I'm proud of this man. I'm proud to have him as my, from my, uh, from my country. He, you will continue to be proud. I, I, I assure you. I've been reckless while I've been drinking. I've never stole a fucking plane. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned a bit earlier that Digby was also very inventive. Now, one of the ways he showed this was in the use of radios within his company, a company. He didn't like them at all. He felt that they were very unreliable, so he decided to reach back to communications tactics used during the Napoleonic Wars. A company was actually trained on the use of bugles, a tried and tested method of communication on the battlefield. I couldn't actually find any other information about any other companies using this form of communication, and we'll actually see in a moment that this was a very smart decision. White fucking trumpets you're talking about, bugles, the weird sort of fucking, like the shitty trumpet. Bugles, yeah. Tiny trumpets, yeah. That's how they communicated. It's just more to tell where your location is and that sort of thing. I'm sure they had bugle calls that meant certain things, but it's because the bugle can pierce through the noise of battle. So you can hear over gunshots and bombs and that sort of stuff. You can hear the sound of a bugle more than you could hear an unreliable radio. Yeah, but what about a bitching guitar solo? How about that? What, like like Mad Max? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah like that, Mad Max. Rolling in with a Panzer tank, just... <laughs> If, if, you, if you're on like that like, sort of like the north side of the battlefield, you just got a rip fucking freebird. If you're on the south, you got sweet child of mine. I'd imagine how bad those two songs would go together as a mashup. That would be, that'd be awful. <laughs> <laughs> then on, on the west, you've got. I'm trying to think of like influential guitar solos now, but off the top of my head, I ain't got any. I'm a drummer after all, so. Well, you can use drum solos, but drums went out in the Revolutionary War. Those were out of vogue by this point. Bugles all the way, man. Uh, no, there the were the word drummers in war, but I can't picture that's a good fucking idea, having war drummers. That was what was in, like, again, the sort of American Civil War. There were drummers. That's what I said, the Revolutionary War. So the war between America and Britain, yeah, they would use drums. They would just march right out onto the battlefield, <laughs> and they'd be the first persons right up there with the people carrying the flags or carrying the colors for my uh, military friends. You just literally just... And you just, like... This dude has no weapons. <laughs> Lord of the Rings makes it seem badass because they got cave trolls fucking smashing those big bongos. Dung, dung. You think, yeah, they're going to march into it. If, if you got me fucking five foot nine marching down with a snare drum with fucking Dave next to me with a flute, it's not happening. We're, we're going down straight away. Yeah. Now, something else that came during training is Digby's penchant for carrying an umbrella everywhere he went. He would go on to carry this umbrella throughout 
all battles he fought in the war. He claimed that, since he could never really remember military passwords, he would carry the umbrella because, quote, it would be quite obvious to anyone that the bloody fool carrying the umbrella could only be an Englishman, <laughs> which he was kind of right. <laughs> yeah, it, it is true. It yeah. is true. Now, aside from these oddities, Digby was seen as an incredible commander. All through training, he was showing so much promise as a commander. Now, even though he was unable to remember the soldiers' names along with the previously mentioned military passwords, he was still able to demand an enormous amount of respect from them. Because of Digby's leadership, a company was chosen to perform a very pivotal role in Operation Market Garden. They were to parachute into Holland and lead the 2nd Battalion 8 miles north to the most distant bridge, Arnhem Bridge. And then they were then to hold this bridge until reinforcements arrived 48 hours later in the middle of enemy territory. See, that's, that, that's, that's quite a long time. How long before... D-Day was this? What year was this? This was 44. This was after D-Day. So this is... After D-Day. I, I believe this was after D-Day, after they landed in German-occupied France, and then they, I think yeah. they pushed them back. Yeah, okay. And then this was them trying to push further in. Okay. Um, I believe my military history is, is, is shoddy at best, but I'm relatively certain this occurred after D-Day. Okay, like I say, I do know my history of that sort of thing, but off the top of my head, I haven't got it, so I, I just wanted to be sure. But uh, So there was in... Essentially behind enemy lines, I guess, like in Holland. So they were obviously meant to just fly in, basically make it all the way through this very hostile environment, get to this mm -hmm. tactical position and hold the bridge. And then the bridge would be used to send troops down the river. So troops and supplies would then go down the river because they would hold all of the bridges mm -hmm. throughout the entire river, which would give them a huge advantage. So what country was that linked to? What Because I know, obviously, it's Europe. So what country was that river? It's in the Netherlands. So was it just another point of the Netherlands, was it? Like? This is considered just the ne Netherlands. Um, but then they make it to Holland, I believe. So, yeah. Right. Netherlands and Holland are the same place. Yeah, you're right. I'm so sorry. Yeah, mm. Holland is on the border of Germany. Completely unrelated from fact, there is actually a place in Holland right next door to Belgium where it's usually the same road consists of two countries. Oh. Where... You've got a calf and another calf and then a line in the road. And if you step across the line, you're in Belgium. If you step back, you're in Holland. Oh. And I always find it's really cool because I'm not sure what the weed laws are in, in Belgium, but I know what they're like in Holland. So if, if you've got a spliff and you just step across that line, you're like, oh, oh, breaking the law, back in Holland, can't do nothing. And you can kind of hop between the two countries. I don't know what would happen to you, but you better hope that there's no... Uh, United States police on vacation there <laughs> when you do it, fuckers. Yeah, we're getting fucking political on this goddamn podcast. Hang on, I'm sure a lot of the United States now is accepting the old um, marijuana. A good amount, good amount of states. I don't amount. know how many. Uh, I don't know how many. It's what, definitely what, what it's states? Not... What what states definitely don't accept it? Uh, Tennessee. So if we got a Tennessee cop just sat there in Belgium. And he just saw you step across that line. You are getting tackled and every, they're going to shout at you, stop resisting, even <laughs> though you're not resisting because you're high. And you're just laying there like, what's <laughs> happening? <laughs> the last thing you want to do is resist. Stop resisting. Stop resisting. Okay, that's, that's enough giving grief to the Americans. That's all right. I can edit anything out I want. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can say whatever the fuck I want yeah. and I'll feel like I'm winning but he will just edit it out I can literally put your entire everything you say is just one long beep <laughs> just you know not even America is 
great. I love that country. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now we're going to kind of skip ahead to the actual operation. Mm -hmm. So they did parachute into Holland and they did travel their eight mile journey. Now the fighting that occurred in the journey through uh, to Arnhem and at the Arnhem Bridge was referred to as the Battle of Arnhem. And this battle contains a lot of information, so we're going to focus just on Digby's experiences throughout the battle. Mm -hmm. Now, once A Company had landed at their drop zone, they made their way to Artem, and the journey there was relatively smooth, with A Company only sustaining one casualty, while also capturing 150 German troops, many of which were actually part of the SS. Fucking hell. However, they soon experienced heavy resistance from German forces when approaching and attempting to capture the bridge. Unfortunately for the Allies, the radios, which Digby had doubted, did indeed cut out and were all but useless when the fighting began. So his insistence on bugles actually did pay off for a company a fuck ton. Because nobody else that landed in this parachute regiment could use a fucking bugle, and they had no radios. (laughs) Except fucking Slash at the back who can rip that bitching guitar to (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Now, even with all of this fighting and all this heavy resistance they were experiencing, Digby would still be seen strolling about the battlefield with his umbrella and wearing his red beret instead of a helmet like every other soldier. Now, I'm going to discuss a few stories from the battle that describe Digby's general attitude and personality during the operation, all of which involve the use of his legendary umbrella. At one point in the battle... Father Egan, the battalion padre, and if you don't know this, in every battalion, every group, whatever, when you're out on a mission, a lot of times they have a father with them, a priest, some kind of thing to read last rites if somebody's shot dead on the field. Father Egan, the battalion padre, was attempting to cross to a building on the other side of a street, but he was pinned down due to the intense mortar fire, and Digby caught sight of him, and he just strolled across the street to meet him. Digby opened his umbrella and held it above Egan's head and invited the Padre to accompany him across the street. When Egan, rightfully taken aback and freaked the fuck out by all this mortar fire, he gestured to the mortar fire occurring around them. Digby just said, don't worry, I've got an umbrella. (laughs) Why didn't he just summon God? Okay, let's not get religious. (laughs) I love the pause in that then. You look again for listeners there, you can't see this, but he looked at me with such spite there. <laughs> I'm not religious, okay? I don't care. I just I don't know why he didn't. He probably was. Maybe God sent him Digby. With how our past few podcasts have gone, you could have fully gullible me then and gone. And that's when Jesus came and saved the day. And I'd have been like, what? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Totally real. And that's when Digby's hair grew to, sh- to shoulder length. And then his <laughs> clothes turned to robes and his umbrella was a cross. It's crazy. <laughs> Take my hand, son. Like, sorry, Jesus. I know I've served you my whole life, but you can't protect me against mortar fire. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you walk out the door, bam, Jesus dead. Sorry for for any Christians out there. I'm so sorry. <laughs> very sorry. Very sorry. Now, on another occasion, the company was under the attack of a German armored car, and there was actually quite a few German armored cars in Arnhem at the time, and they were constantly getting attacked by them. Well, the A Company was a little bit, but then obviously the other members of the regiment were getting attacked in other areas because A Company ended up closest to the bridge than any other force. Because I was just thinking that because the Germans did have a lot of advanced military technology, didn't they? Definitely vehicles. Vehicles, yeah, yeah. But Digby, in a show of his ingenuity, just used his rolled-up umbrella to disable the car. He just poked it through the observation slit into the vehicle and incapacitated the driver. So they weren't that advanced. 
How the fuck <laughs> do you take out an armored car with an umbrella? Is it? Is he the dude out of? Have you seen the film Kingsman? Uh, yes. You know what's his face again? The big famous English actor. I should know his name. Um, Colin Firth. Colin Firth. Yeah, where he's got the mad umbrella. That does all the. Is that yeah. him? Like, is this who he is? Maybe this is who he was based on. I can absolutely see Digby being the basis for that character. Hundred percent. Yeah, it sounds about right. When yeah. you've got a brolly that literally incapacitates war war vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he's not done yet. Now, in another ridiculous example of Digby's just plain heroism, the company was being beaten back from the bridge when a group of Mark IV German tanks and German infantry began entering British territory because they had effectively made it to the northern side of the bridge, and they were actually holding it for quite a bit. Now, many of the men, including much more experienced soldiers, became very disheartened by the side of the tanks and the men, understandably. However, that soon disappeared when they saw Digby leading a bayonet charge directly at the infantry unit. He was carrying a pistol in one hand and wildly swinging his umbrella above his head in the other. And he had also replaced his red beret with a bowler hat, and no one had any idea where he could have gotten that from. <laughs> and this charge effectively pushed the advancing German forces back from the northern part of the bridge. Was he drunk the whole time? Because I could only picture this being, look, this sounds like something I'll do when I'm on the piss. Not like literally fight about the German army, but you know when someone goes, where has he got the hat from? And I'd go... I don't know. It's just on my head now. And I'm charging over there. That, that's how I see it. Like, but that's a very <laughs> British thing as well. A bowler hat is a very British type of thing to wear. Yeah, it is. So how did he find that in the middle of the <laughs> Netherlands? He, in a battlefield. He just literally had replaced his red beret. And the, la the last time they had seen him, he had a beret on. And then he just pulled out a bowler hat and was just like, fuck it, man, let's go. Like, it reminds me of the typical British man when they see a um, traffic cone on a night out, <laughs> yeah. and they look, they look at, they look at it and go, "This is me including." Get the look and go, "That's going on my fucking head." Okay, I need to tell you a story really quickly, and listeners, don't judge me on this story. This was when I was in the military, and I was stationed in England near Lakenheath or Mildenhall. I was late stationed at Lakenheath, but Mildenhall is really close to there. Uh, Google it. But we were on, um, we were out on the piss or on the lash. We were, I was getting very drunk. I was very, very drunk. And we walked by these cones. So I decided to not put it on my head, but to insert my penis into it and to pee inside of it. And then a British gentleman behind me then decided to do the British thing and put it on his head <laughs> after I had pissed in it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> England. Yes. Now, this is where a bit of the unfortunate parts of the story come in. Unfortunately for Digby, Operation Market Garden, like we said earlier, was not very well thought out. They had done relatively well with holding the northern part of the bridge. I think there was about 760 men that had made it to that part, mm -hmm. but they were greatly outnumbered by the German forces. All but one infantry battalion still existed. The second parachute battalion, the one which included A Company, was separated from the other forces of the operation. Other Allied forces were further from the bridge and cut off by German forces, so it seemed like A Company and their battalion were being surrounded. So the decision was then made to abandon the 2nd Parachute Battalion, including the umbrella-wielding Digby. So what, what, what does that mean? Like, um, they basically left them for dead, or was it Digby's idea to... They were left behind. So essentially, again, they were left for dead, basically. Like, well, uh, the, there were so many German forces... 
and there was so little parachute regiments. The 760, I mean, obviously they were holding the bridge for days. At that point, they could have had 10,000 Germans show up and just fight against these 760 fighting on this one bridge. So it, it was not it was not a very good plan. I mean, uh, even even talking about it now, it just seems like it was just not very well thought out. See, it's, it's, it's one of those mad things because even though obviously Hitler was still alive, but I feel like a lot of people do think that the war was won on D-Day, probably through films and that sort of thing. Like, No, yeah, it wasn't absolutely not. It wasn't all that at all. There was still a big battle to face. Yeah. Now, it was hoped that the battalion would be able to hold out until reinforcements arrived. However, it was soon obvious that none would be coming. Although they had held the bridge for four days, double the time that the company was actually expected to hold a bridge. Now, the battalion was left on their own to hold the northern part of the Arnhem Bridge. The men continued fighting the German forces while also concocting different escape strategies. One particular strategy involved small numbers of men sneaking out late in the evening, but these men were soon captured. The German forces eventually surrounded the men and all were captured, including Digby. Unfortunately... The men were then lined up, ten at a time, and shot unceremoniously, with Digby being one of the first still sporting his bowler hat from earlier. Those fucking Nazi bastards! Just kidding. Oh, oh my God! God's sake! No! (laughs) No, Cody! You've got to stop doing this to me! (laughs) Just kidding. Digby was actually taken prisoner and he was actually admitted to St. Elizabeth Hospital to recover from various wounds he had experienced during the battle, one of which was receiving an annoying amount of shrapnel straight to the ass. What? (laughs) Straight to the ass? Straight into his ass cheek, but it was said that he actually hid his limp from everybody during the battle so the soldiers wouldn't be deterred from fighting. See, that's that's actually kind of a funny story resulting back to the war. See, my granddad technically fought in the war, but there was another Skinner who got shot in the ass. Oh, yeah, really? And it, was, it, it wasn't my granddad, but everyone thought it was my granddad. So whenever he said his name, which was Lewis Skinner, everyone thought, oh, you're the one who got shot in the ass. You thought, no, nah, it wasn't him. Oh, wow. Take the, ba- take the badge of honor and, and go away. Just don't deny it. If I'd been in, in the military, I'd have got shot in the ass. I know it would have happened. Probably, yeah. Uh, now, Digby was also admitted with his second-in-command, Captain Tony Frank. Now, the two men waited for the hospital nurse's attention to be drawn elsewhere. When the opportunity presented itself, the two men dressed, climbed through the window, and made their escape into the countryside. They traveled for about a day before deciding to approach a nearby farm for help, as they had no provisions and they hadn't eaten much for days. The farm, they found out, was owned by a solitary woman who agreed to help them. She invited them in, fed them, and then allowed them to sleep in the loft of her barn. Mm -hmm. Soon, they were approached at this farm by a member of the Dutch Resistance Movement, who invited them to another farm. The men agreed and went with the man. After arriving at the new accommodation, Digby was given a false identity, which coincidentally was the identity of a man who was deaf and mute. Mm -hmm. This would allow Digby to move freely in the area without much hassle from the German patrols. He would even go on to assist a German military personnel with their car by pulling it out of a ditch, and he didn't raise any suspicion whatsoever. Now, the leader of the previously mentioned Dutch resistance soon visited the farm where the two were staying. He informed the men that there were other escaped Allied soldiers scattered around the area, hiding with other members of the resistance. In total, there were 138 soldiers hiding in the surrounding areas. So Digby, along with his new identity was also given a bicycle and, in the most English fashion, 
set out around the countryside on his bicycle to check on the men. <laughs> he was also invited by the resistance leader to set up a headquarters in his home, which Digby did. I just got vision going like, bring, bring down the road, like you with his tombola and his umbrella. <laughs> now, over the course of the next few weeks, Digby worked with the resistance to communicate with Allied forces back in England. He informed the Allies that there were 138 men left and that these men needed to be rescued. They began to develop a plan, and this operation came to be known as Operation Pegasus. The aim of this operation was very simple. Get these 138 men to the river and across to the Allied territory. It seemed very foolhardy, considering there were many German patrols in the area. There were literally hundreds of German soldiers around every corner. So Digby would need to recon the area to make sure it was safe to move the men. One of the men, General Lathbury, who had been the commander of the 1st Airborne Battalion, was also one of the 138 men. He and Digby both decided to mount bicycles and ride through the area to check if it was safe to move the men at the time. They were not stopped by any of the 200-plus German soldiers they passed, <laughs> and the operation was set by Digby to begin on October 22, 1944. Now, the men were led through the countryside and through a wooded area near the Rhine River, or River Rhine, however I said it earlier. <laughs> At the end of this wooded area was a meadow leading to the river, and it was shrouded in a low-lying mist. Digby didn't want to give away their position in the woods, so he began ordering every man at five-yard intervals to make their way to the river on their stomachs. Probably very slow and long process, <laughs> but each man did as they were instructed, and by 1 a.m. the following morning, every single of the 138 men had been transported from the Axis Forces side of the river by boat, successfully completing Operation Pegasus. Geezers, he's an absolute... Bad man. Yeah, it's fucking nuts. I, I couldn't imagine being this good of a leader. That I, I, I just, I would be incapable of being this good at planning something out like that and then commanding men to do it. I, just, I, I wouldn't be capable of doing it. I'm, I'm going to hold my hands up and say that. Well, he's an incredible guy. I mean, he, the fact that the fact that he he waltzes into German territory and rides a bike around the countryside. I mean, he would go every other day. Like all, every day, he would be cycling miles around the countryside, checking on these men and stuff. And and he was and he didn't give a shit. He was actually said that uh, at the resistance headquarters, the German soldiers had frequently visited this house, and he would f at first just wait for them to go through the door. But he ended up getting tired of it and just started brushing past them, basically saying, "Get the fuck out of my way! I live here." <laughs> and he would never say anything to him. And at, the first time he did it, they were like, what the hell are you doing? But after that, they just kind of started putting their arms around him whenever they saw him, and they thought he was a nice guy. No way. I'm so glad I've heard about this guy because it makes me proud to be British, honestly. Yeah. Like he is incredible. But even further to this, when he returned to England, Digby actually just resumed command of what remained of A Company. And for his bravery and undeniable heroic involvement in Operation Pegasus, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Order, which is a very high distinguishment in the military. But I think there was one above that that people just thought he should be awarded, but he wasn't awarded that. Mm -hmm. And later in his career, Digby immigrated to Kenya. Here, he bought two large estates and made one into a safari. However, this safari did not really allow animals to be killed except for small birds and that sort of thing. Okay. But instead, this safari promoted the use of cameras. And some people argue that Digby was the very first person to put into practice the idea of the modern safari. 
No way. What a dude. Yeah, which is absolutely insane with the fact that he actually probably coincidentally helped start a conservation movement when actually he was very fond of pig sticking and I think tiger hunting when he lived in India. So in his later years, he went on to almost invent conservatism in safaris at least, which is pretty interesting. That's fucking crazy interesting, mate. Now, Digby stayed in Africa until he died at the age of 75. He died on 21st March 1993, living a full-on, awesome, healthy life, it seems. No way. He was an amazing, eccentric person who left his mark on everything he touched, obviously. And just judging him from his military exploits, he was a courageous man and one who would not let the world affect him. Personally, in this day and age, I hope to strive to be more like that, to be honest. I hope that I can begin living a life where I can control myself to such an extent that the risk of mortar fire does not affect my stroll or the twirl of my umbrella. And the world needs a few more Digby Totham waters. And until that day comes when there are more, I'd say it's a bit unfortunate. They, that is absolutely right. And again, I'm kind of honored that I was alive in the time that he was alive, even, even if it was very short, in 93. Yeah, I mean, the guy is incredible. He's an incredible person. It was, I mean, I know this isn't as unfortunate as it could be, but obviously he was captured. He was put behind enemy lines. He was a prisoner of war, that sort of thing. So uh, that was the unfortunate bit of this, but obviously we didn't have a bad ending. And not all of our episodes have to have bad endings. They can have unfortunate elements. And I think being captured and being left behind enemy lines by the Allied forces is pretty unfortunate. I can't imagine how scared... The people in that in that company were when they said that no reinforcements were coming. We're done. Probably terrifying. Oh, absolutely. And you can imagine that out of the 700 men, only 138 survived. So you can imagine that that the, there was an in, incredible loss throughout this entire and to, throughout the entire operation Market Garden. There was so many losses, and um, it, it definitely was not a successful mission. It's you know that might be the unfortunate part. You know all these people being taken prisoner and being killed on the battlefield and. Showing you that not every time uh, the Allied forces made a move, it was the right one. So I think again, we could literally just point the unfortunate part of been the entire war and the amount of people that did die during the war from every side, even the German side. There was a lot of German soldiers who weren't SS, who weren't Nazis. They were just enlisted. Yeah. So it literally comes from every side. Like the, the entire thing was just unfortunate. Yeah, it was definitely. Well, that is the story of Digby Totham Water. Thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. It's a very interesting character, very uh, interesting bit of history, and I hope, you know, most people probably would not have heard about him, but if you found him by searching for him and you found this episode, then welcome, and thanks for listening. Check out our other episodes because they're... Uh, you can discover some more crazy people from history. But um, I want to thank everybody for listening to the last couple of episodes, um, our Lorena Bobbitt episode, everything else. Please, for the love of God, if you don't mind, share it. Uh, please just share it once on social media. That helps us out immensely. Just show your family and tell a friend about the show. It really helps us out. Please do. And if you want to follow us, uh, if you want to read the show notes or anything like that on the show, you can go on to unfortunatehistory.com. All of the episodes are uploaded there with all of my scripts and notes for the shows. Also, there's links to our social media, which you can follow us on Twitter at UnHistoryPod or on Facebook and Instagram at Unfortunate History. 
And you can follow me, Cody Pennington. Just Google Cody Pennington and you'll find something to follow me on there. Greg, do you want to shout anything out? Um, I just want to thank some of the, the listeners who I know who have been so supportive since we've done it. Again, um, again, some of the names that come to mind are like um, Mars, Adam, Anita for sharing everything and listening and giving them positive feedback. Thank you, guys. Again, I really do love you for it. It means a lot. So, um really helps us out honestly it's so fun to see the to see the um the listens grow and the downloads grow and mm-hmm. stuff. it really helps mm-hmm. us out again, again just just start the odd facebook share it means the world so um yeah thanks for listening again if you want to follow me it's um greg skinner on facebook and um it's it's still jskin93 i'll stop we, laughing we, now we, we'll, we'll stop laughing at that because i'm never going to change it. it's going to be that throughout the entire you should be known for that that should be the thing and mm-hmm. we, we, that's a badge of honor. That's your distinguished order or whatever, distinguished service order. <laughs> like, thank you guys so much for listening, but unfortunately, we got to go. So stay unfortunate. Stay unfortunate, guys. Tura. Bye. Bye. Bye.